Welcome back to Reorg Covenant's podcast, episode three, or episode one, where the three amigos are back again, or for the first time. I'm Peter Washkowitz, and I'm here with Pat Evans and Dan Nikolic. Fellows, how's everyone doing today? Terrific, Peter. Thanks for asking. Doing well here. Well, before we get into the news, let me just pause and congratulate Pat. On Tuesday, Pat was part of a panel that discussed issues around creative financing structures, a la J.Crew, Claire's, and Cumulus. Pat, your performance, as the millennials would say, was on fleek. That's what I was telling all the millennials, too. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Yep, no problem. And also last week, our esteemed podcast producer and the big dog of our Covenants team, Saish Seti, presented a Covenants overview class to the CFA Society as part of that organization's high-yield bond masterclass. Saish, as the millennials would say, slayed that presentation. And now on to the news. Intelsat recently announced that uh, Intelsat Jackson Holdings would be issuing $1.5 billion of 9.75% senior unsecured notes to 2025, with proceeds to be used to redeem their 2019 notes. We recently put out a piece analyzing Intelsat's secured debt capacity under its debt documents following this most recent financing. And we recently did a piece on Ensco. Uh, the company had recently announced that they would be acquiring Atwood Oceanics in a deal valued at $840 million. The piece looked at uh, the combined entity's secured debt capacity following the acquisition. For Dish Networks, the company recently announced a judgment was reached uh, that ordered Dish Networks to pay $280 million to the U.S. Attorney General and several states for, several, uh, for certain telemarketing violations under the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, the telemarketing sales rule, and certain state consumer protection laws. We recently put out a piece analyzing certain default provision in, in the company's DBS notes and convertible notes. In Concordia news, funds including GSO, CQS, and Hayfin, which, holds, which held 44% of Concordia's debt under its credit agreement and secured notes, have exchanged letters with the company voicing concerns to the company's management about its capital structure. We recently put out a piece analyzing certain event of default provisions under the company's credit agreement as well as related liquidity disclosures made by the company in recent SEC filings as they relate to the letters. We're recording this podcast on Thursday, June 29th, and just this morning, Walgreens announced that it was canceling its planned acquisition of Rite Aid and would instead be buying 2,186 stores and three distribution centers from Rite Aid. We had recently put out a piece discussing change of control provisions under certain of Rite Aid's debt documents. Turning to specific names, we're going to start with Pat. Pat, you are covering J. Crew, a name which has been in the news for the last couple months, but in the last two weeks, I feel there's been kind of a fever pitch of news involving the company. Do you want to tell us a little about it? There has been, sure. So um, I think just start at the high level, and I think most people are aware that J. Crew transferred a significant amount of what it said was about 75% of its intellectual property to unrestricted subsidiaries back in December. The company had an expert, Ocean Tomo, that valued that transferred IP at about $250 million, which put the total value of the IP that was ultimately transferred at around $350 million. After transferring the IP, the company filed a complaint in New York State Court to seek a declaratory judgment that the transfer was legally permissible. And then the agent for the term lenders had responded to that initial complaint, arguing that the IP transfer was a fraudulent transfer and that it violated several covenants under the company's term loan credit agreement. We've written a lot about that. Today, I thought it would be interesting. To, I, I want to talk mostly about the latest proposed amendment to the term loan and sort of waived the transfer of the IP. 
uh, issues. But I did want to mention something else that came up at the panel earlier this week. We had talked at the panel in particular about considerations related to fraudulent transfer when a company moves assets to an unrestricted sub. And I had noted that there are two different types of fraudulent transfer, intentional fraudulent transfer and constructive fraudulent transfer. For, you know, for intentional fraudulent transfer, a creditor generally has to demonstrate that the company moved the assets with the intention of defrauding creditors. And J. Crew's defense to that may be that its intention was, was not to defraud the term loan lenders when it transferred the IP, but was instead to use the IP to address the pick notes, which are coming due the pick notes that are issued out of its indirect parent. And I think whether that defense, you know, would hold up is very fact dependent. And so when you're looking at these situations, you, you know, the facts are really important. For, for constructive fraudulent transfer, a creditor generally has to demonstrate that the company was insolvent at the time of the transfer and that it did not receive reasonably equivalent value in exchange for the transfer. And both of those prongs, insolvency and reasonably equivalent value, aren't easily determined and there's a lot of gray area and and it's also very fact specific in the case law. So uh, like what are some things uh, to consider regarding the reasonably equivalent value? Yeah, so that I mean I think that's one of the most interesting questions because you know a lot of these companies when they're moving assets to unrestricted subsidiaries aren't getting anything directly back in exchange for having transferred the assets and in fact in Jay Crew's case they move the assets to the unrestricted subsidiary and then they have to pay a licensing fee to use the property. So the assets are going out the door and then they're also paying a recurring fee. I mean, we've seen that in some other names. Neiman Marcus has a similar situation with the buildings that they've put out to the unrestricted subs. They have to pay rent to, to continue using them. I think some things to consider are, you know, whether the transferring company maintains its equity interest in the subsidiary that it transfers the assets to whether the value of that equity interest is diminished once debt is put on the sub, the, the transferee sub, and then whether the enterprise value of the whole entity may be improved as a result of the transfer. So, so on this last point, Jay Cruz seemed to be arguing that the enterprise as a whole would benefit from the transfer of the IP since it allowed the company to address the pick notes. I think you know whether that argument would be successful you know, could, could be dependent on how the court views the enterprise, whether it thinks that the J. Crew group should be concerned with debt at the group itself, i.e. the term loan, or whether the, the group should consider the pick notes, which are issued out of the indirect parent. And you know, one of the things I've been telling people that have called is Dynagy's examiner report back in 2011 is a, is a pretty good read on the topic of how an internal reorganization could be construed as a fraudulent transfer, and it walks through sort of fiduciary duties and fraudulent transfer law in a pretty effective way. So where do things stand with uh, J. Crew's litigation? So yeah, the company got the consent of 88% of the term loan lenders to agree to an amendment of the term loan. Pursuant to that amendment, the term loan agent was directed to dismiss the litigation. And we'll go into the details about the amendment, but it's interesting that they, they got the amendment in the first place by offering term lenders who agreed to the amendment total of $150 million pay down of the term loans, the lenders who didn't consent to the amendment got nothing. So it was sort of set up like a, like a death trap is set up in a plan where a class of creditors receives more favorable treatment if it accepts the plan than if it rejects. So the term lenders, only the term lenders who consented to the amendment waiving the transfer of the IP got a portion of the $150 million pay down, which was interesting. 
Isn't it unusual to be able to offer non-prorata treatment to lenders under a, a term facility? It is. It's, it's not unusual in the bond context, as we've written about, but it is sort of unusual in the, in the context of a term loan. And we wrote about how other companies may be able to structure a similar sort of coercive environment under a term loan credit agreement. If you, if you look through the assignment of loan provisions and the voluntary prepayment provisions, the sharing of payment provisions, which are which are really important for that analysis, you know, because paying some lenders a prepayment while, while offering others nothing might in some circumstances, depending on the language in the credit agreement, violate uh, those provisions in the credit agreement. You know, the credit, term loan credit agreements are typically structured so that each lender can only recover a prepayment on a pro rata basis, which, which typically means it can't recover more than the other lenders. And there are definitely exceptions to that. And you've got to go through each credit agreement, but that's sort of the general framework of credit agreements. And so what J. Crew did was they amended the credit agreement first to allow it to make the non-pro rata purchases of loans. Uh, and then second, it, the amendment contemplated doing all the other things that like directing the agent to dismiss the litigation. So again, it really it really depends on a careful read of the agreements. But J. Cruz, I thought, was a very creative structure that they that they used by amending the credit agreement to allow for non pro rata purchases, and then going forward with that sort of death trap structure. So you had mentioned that uh, it got eighty eight percent approval. Some back of the envelope calculations tells me that twelve percent didn't approve. So what happened to them? Yeah, so the 12% holdouts sued the company and they sued the administrative agent, the, the term loan a- agent in New York State Court, and they sought a temporary restraining order to stop the company from going forward with the transfer of the intellectual property and, and with the exchange offer that they were contemplating with the pick note holders. And, you know, there's a lot of case law out there that says that minority lenders won't have much luck with, with suits like this. And, and I want to talk very specifically about the no action clause in the credit agreement. But there are certainly exceptions, and the holdouts pointed to a couple of provisions in the credit agreement that they argued should apply to prevent the proposed amendment. You know, just at a high level, those provisions in the credit agreement, there are certain provisions in the credit agreement that govern how a credit agreement is supposed to be amended. You know, typically with the consent of majority lenders, the company is permitted to amend a number of the provisions, and that was true in J. Cruz agreement, though those include the negative covenants, uh, which had arguably prevented the IP transfer in the first place. So they amended the investments covenant, the dispositions covenant, et cetera, with required lenders. But there are a couple of provisions in the amendment section that said that the consent of each affected lender, that is, you know, each, which, which as a practical matter typically means 100%, 100% of the lenders uh, was needed. You needed the consent of each lender. And specifically, those provisions in the amendment section said that the consent of each lender was needed if the company was transferring all or, quote unquote, substantially all of the term lender's collateral. And so the holdouts argued that the intellectual property was substantially all of the term lender's collateral. They retained an expert who said the IP was worth about a billion dollars of the $1.3 billion total enterprise value of J. Crew. You know, and as I mentioned, the company's expert had instead valued the IP at, at roughly three hundred fifty million. So it was, it was. It's an interesting argument. So, so what was the no action clause in the credit agreement? So yeah, so there's a provision in the in the unamended credit agreement. They the company tried to amend this provision, but let's just walk through what the unamended uh, credit agreement provision says. And uh, that it said that no individual lender could bring a suit against any loan party or any suit with respect to the collateral, 
without the prior consent of the admin agent. And the admin agent had not consented to the holdout lenders bringing the suit against J. Crew, so the provision was was you know pretty clearly operable and relevant. Incidentally, though, the the provision in the unamended term loan specifically said the no action clause is not to be used as a defense available to any loan party. So there was some question in my mind as to the scope of the provision, which we wrote about. I mean, for one thing, in addition to arguably not being available as a defense for any loan party, it didn't apply to a suit against the unrestricted subsidiaries. And you can question whether, you know, how relevant that is and whether a suit against the unrestricted subsidiaries would be successful. But the, you know, strictly speaking, the no action clause didn't seem to prevent suits against the unrestricted subs. And it, it also arguably applied only to suits with respect to collateral. And, and so maybe there was an argument that the holdouts could make that, you know, the suit that they were bringing against the loan parties or the unrestricted subs, like for fraudulent transfer or for breach of fiduciary duties, wasn't directly related to collateral, and maybe there was a needle they could thread there. And then, you know, there's, I just point out there's case law on both sides of the issue regarding no-action clauses. Some courts say that, that um, no-action clauses prevent only claims against the borrower or the issuer that arise directly under the contract. You know, that is here the credit agreement. Others say that it prevents all claims, uh, even those that don't arise directly under the contract. So the, the language in the clause really matters, but I did think there might be a gap there that the minority lenders could expose, although I, I also think that the, the no-action clause was in some ways very broad in scope and, and may have you know, prevented the suit. So you would uh, mention that that was in the unamended term loan. I, I assume that means they tried to uh, amend the no-action clause? They did. They tried to amend the no-action clause, which is pretty interesting. I hadn't seen that attempted before. They they struck the language in the clause that said that it couldn't be used as a defense for the loan parties, and they made it so that it applied to all of the loan party subsidiaries, which would include the unrestricted subs. The the clause also specifically said lenders couldn't bring a suit with respect to the you know the specific IP transactions that they were undertaking. Uh, so it, it seems somewhat questionable in my mind that they could amend the no action clause that way. Just sort of, sort of felt. Weird, but you know, I do note the amendment provisions in the credit agreement would seem to allow an amendment to the no action clause with the consent of just the majority of the lenders. So we wrote about this and we put the no action clause in the context of some of the other provisions in the term loan. You know, most notably, as I said, there are amendment provisions that's, that say that unanimous consent of each lender is required for transfers of substantially all assets. So those, those provisions that require the consent of each lender seem to be somewhat at odds with a no-action clause that then prevents minority lenders from bringing a suit. And this is something that you know, could come up in the litigation or, or on appeal if it gets to that stage, I think. So how did the court ultimately rule? So it's not completely over, but the judge denied the, the holdout lender's request for a temporary restraining order. And it placed specific emphasis on the, on the lack of standing to bring the suit due to the no-action clause. I don't think a lot of time was spent analyzing the clause or listening to arguments about it. And we certainly didn't get into the level of detail that, that you know, I sort of just walked through. But, but interestingly, the, the judge didn't dismiss the case and is willing to take discovery regarding the value of the intellectual property. And, and if the judge is willing to do that, it, it suggests to me that they, that she may be sympathetic to the argument that those amendment provisions requiring 100% consent may, in some circumstances, sort of trump the, the no-action clause. 
So we'll just have to see whether how the discovery goes and whether they have success uh, arguing that the IP constitutes substantially all of the asset, all of the collateral for the term loan. And then I, you know, finally I just note that the, the holdout lenders also suggested that they might appeal the temporary restraining order ruling. So we'll just see what happens. All right. Well, thanks, Pat. Um, appreciate all the work on uh, J. Crew. I'm actually wearing J. Crew pants right now, so I hope everything turns out well for I the company. That. I noticed that. Um, anyway, switching gears, Dan's here today to talk about Hornbeck. Hornbeck's, Hornbeck's is an interesting name that Reorg has been covering recently from a variety of angles, I guess, through our reporters and financial analysts on the U.S. side. And then also on the Covenant side, we're going to focus sort of our discussion today on the Covenant's angles. To give our listeners some background on the name, Hornbeck doesn't make shirts, but it's the provi- it's a provider of support services for the offshore oil and gas industry. The situation with Hornbeck is very dynamic at this point. The company's capital structure is super interesting, but happily not that complex either. The company has three series of notes, about $800 million of senior notes due 2020 and 2021, and about $100 million of uh, converts due in 2019 as well as a $300 million firstly delayed draw term loan with about $100 million currently outstanding. The company also has about $170 million of cash on its books. It seems simple enough. The company has recently started to address its capital structure though, right? Yeah, so the $300 million delayed draw term loan is new, and the company recently reduced the outstanding amount of its converts. Previously, the company had $200 million committed revolver, which the new facility replaced. Gotcha. And any insight on why the company chose to replace its revolver? Yeah, good question. We wrote earlier this year, the old revolver had some very restrictive covenants, both both from the perspective of drawing on that facility, but also from incurring new secured debt. The old revolver had a certain anti-hoarding covenant, which restricted it from drawing on the facility unless its balance sheet cast was, was substantially depleted. It also had a certain relatively unique covenant, which generally restricted the outstanding notes from being refinanced with secured debt. Additionally, uh, the new facility rolled forward the maturity date. And the new facility doesn't have these limitations? Generally, no. The company disclosed that the new facility increases financing flexibility. Just to step back for a sec, I think it's helpful to provide some more context on the current situation before discussing the covenant packages under each of the company's documents. As reported by Reorg, some lenders of the new facility were also creditors in the company's converts and may have been rewarded with the purchase of the converts at a premium to market prices, according to sources. Whitebox and Highbridge Capital were the largest holders of the 2019 convertible notes, according to multiple sources as well. So those two entities, they they may have been rewarded through having their particular converts addressed after the company entered into the new delay draw facility. So there are probably a bunch of distressed players looking at the name at this point, right? Yeah, that's probably right. Reorg reported that the holders of the 2020 and 2021 senior notes are working with Milbank and Molis. Also, currently, I guess it's not clear if the remainder of the holders in the converts are cross-holders of other debt. Meanwhile, lenders under the new term loans have to be relatively happy as they have a first lien on the majority of the company's assets under that facility. It's also worth noting that as of yesterday, Hornbeck's 2020 and 2021 senior notes traded in the 50s while its converts traded in the 70s. Just to sum this all up, basically, the company has two series of unsecured notes trading in the 50s that are maturing in 2020 and 2021. The converts, the nearest term maturity in 2019, are trading in the 70s. And the company's first lien delayed draw term loans were recently entered into by funds which likely had cross holdings and converts 
prior to the recent buyback of some of the converts. This all sets the scene for some potentially very coercive exchanges in the future. But Dan, what makes you say that? Has the company announced anything? So the company hasn't announced anything or any transactions other than what we discussed. However, as we wrote in our covenants coverage earlier this week, certain covenants and provisions in the new delayed draw facility suggest that the company may not be done addressing its capital structure. Also, the situation with the senior notes trading at a steep discount and the lack of any second lien debt in the structure seems ripe for, ripe for the company to take advantage. What new covenants are suggesting that the company may engage in further transactions? Well, aside from the fact that the new facility eliminated certain restrictions that were in the old revolver, the new facility includes certain notable debt baskets for junior lien debt. To step back, uh, from a high level, the covenants in the new facility resemble covenants in high-yield notes rather than bank debt. As such, there are debt and lien covenants which, which restrict secure debt incurrences as well as other covenants. However, a notable basket under the debt and lien covenants permit a very large amount of debt secured by liens junior to those securing the delayed draw facility. This basket likely permits enough junior debt to fully cover the outstanding market value of the company's outstanding notes. Additionally, addition of this basket in the recently closed delayed draw facility, where there were no similar baskets previously in the old revolver, could be evidence that the company may potentially intend to address its outstanding notes with the junior lien, with junior lien debt, or at the very least, current junior lien debt. I think the thought is, if they just entered into the new facility with these covenants, and particularly they went out of their way to add a new basket, it sort of makes sense that they might be thinking about using it in the future. And I guess just how soon they might use it is you know, maybe up in the air, but given where the, you know, the company and the notes are trading today, it seems like sooner rather than later might be the idea. We covered this basket, the, the junior lien debt basket, and some other baskets, debt lien restricted payments covenants in our recent coverage of Hornbeck. So the idea that you're suggesting is that the company could make an offer to senior note holders for second lien debt and that anyone participating could find themselves further down the capital structure? Yeah, that would be the idea. Although, as mentioned, the company hasn't announced anything, and it's currently unclear how such an offering would hit the company's interest expense or if note holders would be successful in resisting such a transaction. In any case, given the evidence in the term loans, the players in the structure, the discounted trading prices of the company's bonds, and lack of any second lien debt in the structure, I think there's definitely a risk that the current unsecured senior note holders could get layered or they could find themselves as part of a very coercive exchange. So are there any covenants in the senior notes that could prevent this? Well, a few points on that. Um, firstly, the converts don't have any debt and lien covenants, so nothing in that document could likely stop this. Secondly, even if the senior notes had a very had very restrictive covenants, which, as I'll mention shortly, they likely don't, the company may be able to take all the, the notes out, or at least half of both series, coupled with an exit consent that strips covenants, in which case the covenants in the senior notes may not even matter. So, you know, the only covenants at that point you're really concerned about are the covenants in your, your term loans. In any case, the senior notes do have certain restrictive debt and lien covenants. However, as discussed across a few of our old covenant articles, there's a credit facilities basket which likely has some capacity and permits the company to add additional tranches to the existing term loan agreement. The structure of the credit facility basket in the senior notes was, I think, a bit unique in terms of the fact that, again, it only permitted debt under particular credit agreement and any credit agreement that replaced that credit agreement. So right now, it really only permits debt under the actual term loan agreement, but that gives you a little bit of leeway to potentially play with it if you wanted to formulate a transaction that left the covenants in the senior notes outstanding. 
And th this nuance and other nuances are some that we discuss in our articles. Oh, holy moly. Definitely some real risks or opportunities in that structure, it seems. Thanks for that discussion on Hornback, Dan. My pleasure. All right, listeners, I guess that's it for this episode. We hope you all have great July 4th weekends. And from here at Reorg, stay above par. <laughs>